Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll be glad you did. Welcome to KCBS In-Depth, a discussion of one of the topics making news this week. This is KCBS In-Depth. Welcome to In-Depth. I'm KCBS reporter Jenna Lane, back from Butte County with more harrowing stories of escape from the campfire than we could ever find time to tell. Today we focus on an exceptional one. Here are paramedics Sean Abrams and Mike Castro and their EMT partners, Shannon Malaris and Robin Cranston of Butte County EMS. How'd your day begin? Sean and I, our shift starts at six. Shannon Malaris and Sean Abrams are longtime partners, but a temporary reassignment had kept them apart for months. They were excited on November 8th to be back together. We started seeing this big giant smoke column we were actually parked in front of his kids' school. We were going to greet them as his wife was bringing them to school. And Yeah, I called dispatch and uh, just to see if they knew what was going on as far as this, because it was pretty evident. We went and got some breakfast burritos. Uh, that was about 7.30, and when we came out of there, this small plume had, like, tripled in size in about 15 minutes. We got to my son's school. Everyone's looking up at the sky. Everyone, everyone on the playground, all the teachers, everyone's looking up. This does not look good. We knew it was close and we knew it was big and it was growing fast. Mike and I, we start at 7.30 and we kind of did the same thing they did. We had a breakfast, extremely quiet during breakfast Robin time. Cranston and Mike Castro in a second ambulance would join Malaris and Abrams in the few vehicles going in to paradise as the campfire grew. Their job was to get patients out of Feather River Hospital. And if we're evacuating Feather River, it's bad. I mean, we basically got told we were supposed to go directly to Feather River Hospital. You need to get people out of Feather River Hospital and just as fast as you can. And by the time we actually got to the town limits, it was just like midnight outside. It was so dark and smoky. Uh, and that was kind of like the throat of the fire at that point. It was coming over the ridge and that's where it kind of got its first touch of, you know, houses and cars and, you know, different fuel sources to really intensify it. Um, so we, we pulled into to Feather River. They had a patient that they were supposed to pick up, and then we just were like, hey, we have an open ambulance. Bring them in, you know. As so, many as we can fit safely. Yeah. They just started giving us patients, and we put one on the stretcher. We got one on a backboard, put on the bench seat. I said, I need one that can sit. I got a seat, so just give me anybody that can sit upright. And so we had one that could sit upright. And uh, I think all in all that took about 15 minutes, give or take. You know, heavy smoke coming from the canyon. I could see fire on the south side um, of the hospital, but it, it still seemed like it was a little ways away and like we had time. But man, when we turned around to, to get out of that parking lot and you just saw the fire hit that road and then it was jumping the other side, it was, it didn't look good going up, but I mean, the, it moved in on us so fast. It's just, uh, I don't think anybody expected that. With five patients and three nurses between their two ambulances and a little advice from a firefighter about which way not to go, they tried to start back down toward Chico. 
it was just bumper to bumper. I mean, everything was on fire in front of you, over your head, the wind was whipping, I mean, just smoke and embers. It was just kind of an apocalyptic kind of scene at that point. Um, and they were right behind us. I, I remember one specific moment when we were driving with our patients and telling Mike, this is not good, this is really bad, Mike. And he's like, we have patients, we, we gotta be the strong ones, Robin. And I didn't wanna be the strong one, but Mike really put me in check a few times and brought me back down to earth. So my little teammate over there. And she's not even my regular partner. No, I, I picked this shift up. Um, I covered it for a friend that day. And uh, I was kicking myself for, I remember telling him, I'm running. And he said, no, you're not. We got patience. And I was like, you're right. And we just worked. We just went to work. We were in the lead. So uh, the amb we were trying to get ourselves through traffic. You know, I was kind of taking down mailboxes and, you know, every now and then and just trying whatever I could to just kind of get get through. Um, but the the smoke was so thick that the ambulance just couldn't handle that intensity, that heat, the smoke, and it was getting choked out and the ambulance started to stall. It died a couple of times. I was able to, to restart it and then it just wouldn't turn over anymore. It just died right there on the road and you know, cars were backing up behind me so I felt bad about that. And so I'm just like, oh, what are we gonna do? And then right then uh, some smoke and embers blew across the front and, and I don't know what caused it but the whole front end started to catch on fire. I just immediately jumped out, ran to the back and, and said, get them out, get the patients out. We've got it, the ambulance is on fire. All we heard was Shannon yell on the radio, like, Medcom 37, we're on fire. And then we saw it on fire. He's like, we got to help him. So I look in the mirror to see if I can get out, and I see a driveway. And I told Shannon, I was like, take the stretcher to that driveway. That's the only thing that's not on fire. Everyone did their part. We took the patients there, and Sean put the fire out with the extinguisher before it got into the patient compartment. And the wind just picked up and we got into that driveway at the perfect moment. If their ambulance wouldn't have died right there, we wouldn't have, wouldn't have had that driveway. That's when I panicked a little bit more because our, our ambulance is gone. A source of getting out is gone now and my radio was dying. Robin was backing the ambulance into there. The girls were getting the stretcher out. They got the stretcher out. Mike jumped in the back, grabbed a patient, slung that patient over his shoulder. Then I was left with uh, a single patient in the ambulance that um, I had nobody to help. The girls were gone. I knew Shannon would come back eventually, but at that point I was just looking for anybody. I happened to see a guy running down the road and I called over to him. I said, hey, you need to come over here. I need your help. He came over. We ended up taking the patient out and everyone egressed to that asphalt driveway because the fire had moved in on us, started catching the fence line and the brush on fire there, so we were getting hit with a lot of fire and embers. Um, I took a, a windfall to the face, as did my patient. I remember just grabbing the backboard, turning and running with the patient, and that's the point that we got to the driveway of the house. They were not the only ones drawn to the relative safety of that sliver of asphalt. The man Abrams flagged down for help moving a patient happened to be a pediatrician whose truck had caught fire, too. And in that driveway as well was a battalion chief, uh, the fire chief Paradise. Of course, we immediately went over to his window and we're just like, what's going on? What what are we going to do? And uh, he said he only wanted to talk to one person. 
and who's in charge. So Mike and I, of course, look at each other and <laughs> he's like you. And so uh, I was like, I'm in charge. And so he said, break into the garage, put the patients in there. One person or two people just need to walk around the house and make sure nothing catches fire. Those were his instructions. Nothing else. <laughs> no, we're not trained fire personnel. He, you know, and the nurses had jumped in his vehicle. Um, everyone's having their moment because, be quite honest, I mean, it didn't look like we were getting out of there. In, in my mind, I, I wasn't ready to stop working and like roll over and die, but the realization of your mortality is coming into play here. We are not going to make it out of this, but we're going to go down fighting. So we did what he said, and I think Robin and Mike uh, bulldozed that fence and broke into the backyard. Uh, Shannon got in the garage, and we placed uh, our three patients from our ambulance. Their patients stayed in their ambulance, and it then it work. was like, got to work. Yeah, it mm -hmm. was find a water source, find some hoses, see if we have water pressure. Let's find a propane tank, because a lot of people up there have external propane tanks, large ones, and we want to make sure there wasn't one on this property. Luckily, they had running water and water pressure. You said everyone, some people jumped into the fire chief's truck and everyone was kind of having their moment. Mm -hmm. Rightfully so. Can any of you tell me about your moment? I think it was when we were, we had just loaded patients into the garage and um, my phone actually uh, burned up in the ambulance. So luckily one of the nurses that, that was with us had a phone. So... I just was like, okay, well, I better make my phone call now because I'm going to be really busy later, you know. So I was able to call my husband. I was so happy to hear his voice, but then I was really sad that I was going to tell him what was going on and that I might not come home. And so, you know, told him that I loved him and kind of gave him a rundown of what was happening. And, you know, you could hear it in his voice. He was shocked. At first, he didn't think, he didn't understand that it was me on the phone. Um, he thought maybe somebody had like called his number by mistake and was saying their last goodbye. It didn't. It just didn't set in. But it eventually did. And you know, I was having you know like a big cry moment on the phone. And you know, and I said, I'll try and call you if I can later. And I love you. And bye. You know. And that was. And it was terrible that I felt like I had to do that. But that's what I felt like I had to do. I think all of us pretty much felt like we had to do that at that moment. That was sad. Uh, the, I, I'm not entirely sure why, but the only thing that worked for me was FaceTime. And um, my mom doesn't have an iPhone, but my stepdad does, and I've never seen him cry before. And that day I saw him cry, and uh, I kind of showed him what I was dealing with. And I showed him the fire, the walls of fire, um, Mike on the roof with, you know, just trying to get everything under control. and. He wasn't with my mom, but I said, tell my mom I love her, and you know what? We're going we're gonna to fight. I'm not giving up, and there's no way we're going down without fighting. And I told him I would call him when I was safe again, and I didn't know if that was going to happen. But if it did, he'd be the first person I called. I also called my partner, and it was heartbreaking because I didn't know if that was going to be the last time. I said, I love you, and... Uh, we just had to put the phones down and go back to work, you know? And the amazing part is we came back together. We never miscommunicated. We always just put our heads down and we worked. And we, I, I know you also called your family too. I tried. I tried to call my wife uh, three times. I couldn't get out. So I sent her a text and uh, just told her that I loved her and 
tell the kids that I love them. And, and then after that, you know, it was like a, a long gap because I was very <laughs> in the moment. Like we were fighting a propane tank fire on the backside of the house. There was spot fires all over. The roof caught a couple times and whatnot. But it's, I was just trying to say task oriented. I can't say that enough. That's what got me through. That's what this job is about. In high stress situations, you know that list of things. Okay, I got to take care of A, B, C, and D. In this situation, we didn't have a plan. Right. But you still approach a problem and you got to solve that problem. Then you got to move on to the next one. So I got water in one hand and uh, let's find containers that we can fill up. That was definitely a, a great point that and I'm not even sure who who brought it up, but we didn't know if we were going to lose water pressure. So let's find containers and let's fill them up with water, uh, bathtubs and sinks. We found coolers and jugs and uh, you start yard sailing everything, anything that looked like it could burn cushions, dog beds, propane tanks had to go. Um, and it was just, those are the things that kept, kept me at least in the, in the, in the game. I'm curious about whether if you had just been Sean, the civilian, if you feel like any of you would have acted the same way in the same situation, or was there something about being in uniform and having patience that sharpened your focus? Definitely the patients were, were on my mind. I mean, like everyone, we had 13 souls there. That's a lot of people to like take shelter in one place. It's a lot of responsibility and, and that it definitely weighed heavy on me. Okay, I have my partner who I love, my fellow EMS people who I love, these patients I've never met before, these nurses I've never met before. There's no way I'm gonna let them down. I, I don't know if why, I would have- I think that's why you're in EMS though. <laughs> yeah, like I think that's the one thing. I don't know if any of us can ever see ourselves as not being EMS. That's just who we are. Yeah. Whether we're wearing the uniform or not, that's just what we do. How did you get on the roof, Mike? <laughs> <laughs> well, like Sean said, basically everybody kind of got their own jobs to put out fires on every side of the building. And we started noticing pine needles on top of the roof. There was multiple spot fires that started popping up there. And that was something we knew once the roof went, we were basically done. And so everyone kind of shouted every time a little spot fire would come up. Um, we'd put it out as best we could because it tried to catch many times. Any and one of those spot fires would have would have just ignited the whole place. Mm -hmm. So every, I, yeah. Uh, every house around it was burned down when I went back up there and ours was almost untouched. And it's because we found a leaf blower, a tiny little rake, shovels, three hoses, and we just worked. And people <laughs> that just weren't gonna stop. You know, we weren't, we weren't gonna stop no matter what. Like we were all exhausted, we were hot and sweaty and thirsty, and, you know, but we just, we just didn't stop. Until the very you end. must also, though, have been asking for help or radioing out or hoping that you would not have to do all of well, this. Yeah. And I don't think my moment that I kind of had to call people, uh, I don't think that came much later until we had to do that. You know, we were trying to communicate with our, our other resources, trying to get us help, and they tried getting multiple uh, fire engines to us, and unfortunately nobody really could get to us at any point in time. And I know uh, Mickey was, was one of the ones who was uh, kind of our lifeline on the radio. Their operations chief, Mickey Huber, could not get to them. I got as close as um, Pearson Road and Pence um, before I ran into the wall of fire. They were on the other side of it, no more than about three quarters of a mile away. And there was just no way to access it. All I could really do at that point was the, the simple stuff on the radio. Um, and that's when I asked the dispatch to, to start checking on not only these two crews, but all of the crews every five minutes. I wanted to make sure that we knew where everybody was at. It even got to the point where we actually 
started hearing radio traffic that um, they had multiple uh, air ambulances and helicopters. They were going to try to get basically get us out of there. And unfortunately, one of the other realities of that is we all know, you know, helicopters have very limited space. And so we knew that if a helicopter was to come and get to us, that, you know, I think Sean and I were in the back kind of discussing it. We already had plans on, you know, what was going to happen if, if a helicopter landed. And then that's when I finally ended up calling somebody and called my mom and told her and had the <laughs> terrible pleasure of, you know, making my mom cry one last time, basically. But, I mean, we had our ambulance crews trying to come and get us. Um, we had other units that were stuck at, like, the bowling alley. Some people got burned over over there. Trying and so, to get to us. Mm-hmm. It was like, look, if you can't get here safely, then don't even try to get here at all because we don't need two more on this body count. I mean, that's like the reality of the situation, right? So we did have air support, but there was no way that they were going to get into us. I mean, these 100-foot pines were on fire all above us and, you know, wind blowing sideways, they're not going to land. For me, it was a little deflating hearing the engines trying to get to us, especially 941, the guys that actually did make it to us, every time they hit something and they were just said impassable, 941's unable to make it and my head would hang a little lower. You know, it's still doing what I'm doing, but my head just sagged a little lower because it's just like, man, it was really, we are really trapped in here. And you, you were getting that sense more, as more time went on and the more radio traffic you heard, you knew it wasn't getting better out there, it was getting worse. About an hour into their firefight, they got what Abrams calls a very nice surprise. Two volunteers with Butte County Search and Rescue drove through the fire and found them. So I'm in the backyard and I'm fighting fire and I look over to my right and I see a guy in a yellow jacket that did not belong. I was like, where did you come from? And, you know, he looks over and he's just like, I'm a volunteer at uh, Butte County Search and Rescue. And, you know, we drove through the fire. We heard you guys were up here, so we're here to help. They had tools. You know, we had shovel, we could start digging line at that point. It was just amazing. That just like brought my spirits up, yeah. I mean, tenfold yeah. to see they're here and they're gonna help us fight this. That's just two more hands on deck that we could really use at this point, so. And a vehicle. And a vehicle. Mm-hmm. To bring patients out and, and, more, and us, you know, cause at that point we were down a vehicle and those guys just got to work with yeah. us, you know, started Using um, shovels. shovels, that was like the huge thing. We we tried looking all over this house for garden tools, and you know we couldn't find much because um, all the power was out and you couldn't see anything. So we were just you know using our hands, using you know whatever we could to scrape away pine needles. All of us were essentially the ones out trying to put the fires out, and the nurses were trying to you know calm themselves and calm the patients and kind of get ready to leave if we had to, because we were talking about if we were able to get somebody there, how we were going to get out. Um, and 941, like Sean said, was the was the unit that was finally able to make it to us. And uh, I think Sean said it was the prettiest red engine that we've ever seen. Ever seen. <laughs> yeah. The happiest I've ever seen, ever been to see an engine. So um, everyone did their their part. You know, the nurses, they didn't hesitate, right? You put a broom in their hand, they were sweeping. You put a shovel in their hand, and they were collecting pine needles as well. Kudos to them. And then, you know, 941, those guys, man, they they hit power lines down, they, they cut power poles, they put out fires, they, they must, I must have heard them say, this road is impassable maybe five times, and each time they either moved the obstacle or put out the fire, so they never stopped, you know, and that kind of perseverance is why we're sitting here talking today, you know, I, said, I'm, I truly believe that. And it was funny that finally when they did show up, I mean, they, 
basically looked at us, looked at the house, and said, okay, well, you guys have this handled. We're going to go over yeah. here. You know? <laughs> yeah. They were like, you guys did a great job. Um, we're going to go try to save this house over here. I'm a little surprised that you didn't just all, like, pile on and <laughs> grab onto a ladder and just <laughs> get on out of there, right? Here's another vehicle. You want to get in the back of the pickup truck and just... Yeah. We definitely wanted to. I'm sure everybody had that moment, like, oh, let's go. Let's go now. But, you know, we still had to come up with a plan, and they are like, well, right now... This we can't is go we can't go back, yeah. so this is actually a fairly safe spot where we're at. And then they told us like in the event that something goes awry and you know the house catches fire, or whatever, we're all gonna move to the cul-de-sac and we'll just wait for this to burn over and then we'll go. And at that point, the winds had shifted away from us a little bit, and so the sky lightened up and we were able to kind of get a clear, you know, have like a little reprieve almost from the fire coming straight at us. So that bought us a little bit more time too. And it just all kind of came down to good timing. All day. Yeah. yeah. It was just the these little things. Storm. Pretty amazing. They feel lucky that that ambulance gave out next to the only asphalt driveway for a half mile in either direction, that they could see it through the black smoke, that the house they found still had running water. Water. I was just drinking off the hose. I was, yeah. it was in, it was surgically glued to my hand. I was even using the restroom and hosing at the same time. So it yeah. was like things like that. So <laughs> I said a little prayer and I was hosing and, you know, so it's, uh, yeah, that hose never left my hand. Yeah. And, and watching everybody work, I mean, it was absolutely awesome. And, you know, I was fortunate to be on the roof and watch everybody. And it was just, it was really nice to see, seeing everybody kind of sitting there communicating, you know, and, that pediatrician who just happened to be there was an extra hand. What was funny is his actual words to, to Robin is when he first identified himself because titles go out the window when you're in that situation. Um, but he basically said, you know, I'm, I'm just a pediatrician, but if I help, can I stay? And I said, <laughs> yes, you're a, you're a doctor. Please stay. You <laughs> have five patients yeah. that need your help. And you're a firefighter today. That's what Sean said. So I told him in the backyard because he said that same thing to me. He goes, I'm just a pediatrician. I said, not today. I said, you're a firefighter today. So we all are. So eventually we got out. You know, the firefighters, they're used to fire behavior. And so they felt that at this one moment that it was a good opportunity for us to get out. But the only place we could go to is back to the hospital. At Feather River Hospital, they shifted back to medical mode, helping triage patients until sheriff's deputy said it would be safe to leave. They got out of there. Uh, Shannon and I stayed behind. We watched the last patient go out in a sheriff vehicle, and I think her and I were the last of like five people in that helipad, and we just, we just found a, a love seat, two-person seat to sit in and put our heads on each other's shoulders and, and just took some, some deep breaths because we knew like, I think this is it. We're getting out of here. And then uh, a couple search and rescue guys came up and said, hey, you guys need a ride? And we said, please, <laughs> let's get out of here. So yeah, that, that was, was and that was hard for us to leave you guys because we had, Robin and I took the ambulance with a couple of patients out, um, which was still an ordeal because <laughs> yeah, was, when they said it was safe, it was not it was safe. well, it was it was safe for for their vehicles. Uh, sometimes people forget that an ambulance is a lot taller than a typical car. You know, we have nine feet, six inches to clear. And there was so many power lines everywhere. So we had to start pulling down cables with uh, pieces of wood that we could find. And there was one last little area where a lot of the fire crews were still battling a good blaze. And we pushed through that and getting past the wall of smoke and seeing blue skies and the canyon was just absolutely beautiful. I mean, everyone in our ambulance just started clapping and cheering. And When they finally reached hospitals outside the fire zone, they got standing ovations. Everyone knew. 
everyone knew that two Butte County EMS crews, ambulance crews were up there. I don't think I saw a fellow Butte County EMS staff that day that I didn't like hug for a solid minute, you know? In fact, I still got today, I saw Kirk Blazner for the first time and he goes, I want that hug we talked about. <laughs> and so today in the ambulance bay, I got to hug another paramedic because we hadn't, we haven't seen each other since the fire. And he said, he told me, he says, I see you, I'm gonna, I'm a hug you, I'm gonna make it awkward. And it's, hey, that's okay, you know? So we hugged for a solid minute, you know? It's just one of those things, it's just, you hear it in fire, you hear it in the police force, but EMS is no different. These are our brothers and sisters. It wasn't until we actually got back to the Feather River Hospital that Sean was able to contact our dispatch to call our families and all let them all know that, hey, we're actually made it out okay. Mm -hmm. I know, uh, for, like, my mom was not happy with me. She, you know, she had gotten a call from me saying, you know, like, basically goodbye. And then a little bit later, she gets a call from one of my supervisors saying, you know, is this my mom? She was, like, ready for them to say, basically, that that I had not made it, basically. Now that you have this experience in your rearview mirror, how has it changed the way that you do your job? Or how has it changed the way you are with your families? More I love you, more I love you texts and, you know, being open with people, like telling what, you, what you're feeling about them and letting them know you're appreciative. I think for me, it's just not taking things for granted as much, you know, just the time that you have with people, you know, I. It's easy to get caught up with life and not really take the time to to spend, you know, with your family or, you know, calling a friend that you haven't called in a while. And so I think I'm doing that more. You know, I call my mom more often. You know, she lives in Georgia, so we don't see each other a lot. So definitely making more phone calls, uh, spending more time with people, making plans to go do things. You know, life is precious. Time goes fast. <laughs> I have to agree. Um, going back to work was a little weird because uh, you, you go back to your uh, broken leg calls, you know, headache calls, and you're like, oh, okay, this isn't a huge fire that might kill us. I could do this. Uh, a lot more time with my friends and family and living in the moment and just kind of appreciating the simplicity of my everyday life now. Not that... I appreciate my family more. I just want to spend more time with them. You know, I I got out of that situation. I get to see my family again. That was that was huge for me. And my son's five, and he heard a lot of crosstalk, probably more than he should. And and so the next day, when I went to work, um, he didn't want me to go to work. He didn't want Daddy to get burned. You know, he knew I came home. I had some burns on my face. Yeah, he just he didn't want Daddy to get burned again. So. Anybody going to um, switch to firefighting now? Or? <laughs> no. Yeah. Very good. Been there, done that. I was headed that direction when I got bit by this bug, so I enjoy emergency medicine much more. I'm a little upset that we got caught in that situation. Right. <laughs> I think that's one in a once in a lifetime thing. Obviously, that's just. I'd love to say that. No one knew that that fire was moving that fast. You hear an evac of a hospital and people need your help. That's where you're going. Um, and I, you know, I'd do it again. If that was the call that we had to do, I'd go up there in a second and start evacuating the hospital if that was what was necessary. You know, that's just what we do. So. Mickey, you said um, you're not so confident this is a once-in-a-lifetime uh, event. No, I'm not, because I was the, um, the operations check section chief when we evacuated the hospital in 2008. Back in 2008, I made a statement that we'll probably never do this again, or at least not during my career, and 10 years later, we were doing it again. So it... Uh, it's happened twice. I don't anticipate it'll happen a third time, but you know, 
never say never and never say always. There's always possibility that we could all be in this situation a week from now, a year from now, 10 years from now, again. That's Butte County EMS Operations Chief Mickey Huber with his ambulance crews, paramedic Sean Abrams and EMT Shannon Malaris, and paramedic Mike Castro with EMT Robin Cranston. And I'm Jenna Lane, KCBS. You've just heard KCBS In-Depth, a news interview program for All News 740 and FM 106.9 KCBS. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up. And your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app.